So the readings from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may be you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if any, anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray for the ministry of your spirit uh, the, uh, the, as it uh, takes the, the sword of the spirit, the word, and uh, uses it to penetrate our minds and hearts. And uh, Father, we pray that uh, each of us here and the children next door would have humble and contrite hearts that tremble at your word we pray father god that we would be learning and that we would be growing in our trust and our love and our obedience to you in jesus name amen uh, the rolling stones cannot offer much satisfaction <clears throat> now i say that because on friday tickets for their upcoming open-air concert in london's hyde park went on sale 65,000 tickets sold in five minutes over the internet. And uh, they said that if the internet had been faster, they would have sold them quicker than that. But many of their fans were left feeling a bit unsatisfied. And one of the key reasons for that was the cost of the tickets. $139 Australian, or about £95, for a ticket. And guess what? With that you get no seat. You stand with uh, the other 64,999 people pressing in around you. And on the internet, some fans were expressing that they were not particularly satisfied by that. And particularly given the age of some of their fans, they kind of would have liked a seat, actually, because these are ageing rockers, the, uh, the uh, Rolling Stones. Uh, in, since 1965, the Rolling Stones have been singing I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And it's, it was listed as the second greatest 
song of all time, but it was the, the magazine that listed the, the, it as the second greatest song of all time was, of course, the magazine called the called Rolling Stone. Uh, can you guess what the greatest song of all time they named was? By Bob Dylan, like a Rolling Stone. <laughs> but it's an inc- incredibly successful song, nevertheless. And I guess it's successful because it taps into a very real and felt human desire, doesn't it? The desire for some degree of, well, for satisfaction, for fulfilment. That uh, desire for something more, something which is lasting, something which is truly satisfying. And we all have that desire, don't we? We desire for something which brings us ultimate purpose, ultimate significance, ultimate meaning in life that leaves, leaves us not craving for something better. A reason for that, of course, is that life can be frustrating. Our workaday lives can sometimes be quite a drudgery. We experience the frustration that life and the world is not necessarily the way that we would want it to be. And there's also that sense of futility that we learnt a lot about when we looked at Ecclesiastes last year, that we all know that uh, there's a finish line that uh, life will come to an end and the question is, well, therefore what meaning do we have? And so we we fill our lives with things which we hope will give us a a measure of satisfaction. Not sure what the Rolling Stones have been filling their lives with, but I wonder what you try to find uh, to, to bring you satisfaction in your life. This is one of the key themes in this little New Testament book that we're going to be looking at over the next month or so to Peter because uh, Peter addresses a situation where people uh, were in the spiritual life uh, promising a higher degree of satisfaction than uh, what is obtained through Christ. So I want want you to open up your Bibles at 2 Peter chapter 1. It's on page 860 and we'll dive into it this morning. The first and most obvious thing that we notice about to Peter is who wrote it and uh, it's pretty good because in ancient times in the first century uh, they would uh, start a letter by saying who who they are and then they would say who the person they're writing to is and then they would offer some blessing and then get into the guts of the letter. It's a bit different from us. You've got to read to the end of the letter before you know who's written the letter unless you've cheated and looked on the back of the envelope. So we know from right from the very beginning that uh, this is a letter that comes from the hand of the Apostle Peter. Uh, this is the man who was hand-picked by Jesus. This is the man who'd spent three years uh, living with Jesus. He had experienced uh, the teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and particularly one which stood out a lot for Peter was the transfiguration that we looked at just a few weeks ago in Mark. Now, uh, we don't know for sure, but it seems most likely that Peter has written this letter from Rome, uh, which is where he spent his uh, final chapter of his life. And we learn something about the people to whom the letter was written, but uh, it's not written to a specific church. It's not like you're saying, I, Peter, 
to the saints in Philippi or to the saints in Colossae or in Thessalonica or whatever. Uh, this is a general letter. It's addressed to Christians in general. And so we see that in verses 1 and 2. So verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant, apostle of Jesus Christ. And who is he writing it to? Well, he says, To those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. And then he blesses them. He says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And so in these opening words, there's a lot packed into them actually. Uh, in the description of the people to whom he's writing and the blessing that he seeks for them, it actually gives us a little bit of a hint as to what was on Peter's mind that he's going to address later on in the letter. And uh, so if I can just sort of draw your attention to a few of those things, uh, for example, he talks about uh, our faith in verse, in verse 1. What does he say about our faith? He says that our faith, he describes it as being precious, doesn't he? That ours is a faith which is precious. And then he, he talks about how this faith has been received. How has it been received? It's been received through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so embedded in that, he's, he's describing Jesus, isn't he? And uh, the righteousness of Jesus which means that Jesus uh, is qualified to bear our sins upon himself on the cross, to perform that exchange of our sin for his righteousness. And it actually states, talks about Jesus as being our God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, which uh, tells us that, that Jesus uh, is uh, eminently qualified to be the one who dies for us because his sin, because his righteousness, uh, the righteousness of, of God, is actually sufficient. His sacrifice is sufficient to pay for our sins on the cross. So this is the basis upon, this is the basis of our faith. Now, what does Peter actually want for his readers? Well, he wants them to experience abundance, doesn't he? He wants them to experience abundance. He wants them to experience lots of grace. And what's the other thing that he prays for them? Grace and, and peace. And peace is something that you experience when you've got security. Uh, and uh, that's what he prays for them. How can they get that? How can they get this grace, this undeserved uh, benefit from God, of salvation and this peace, peace with God, their creator, and peace within themselves rather than anxiety, how can they get that? Well, they receive that through having, what does he say? A knowledge of, of, of God and of Jesus. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, this issue of knowledge is actually quite a big issue uh, in the context uh, to which, uh, into which Peter is writing. Um, and it's a big issue even today in the Christian world, isn't it? Because 
there are preachers who uh, claim to have uh, have a special knowledge that uh, God reveals himself directly uh, to them. And uh, so therefore they have a special knowledge which you do not find in the scriptures, in the Bible. And uh, so if you want the uh, an experience, if you want to experience satisfaction and fullness in the spiritual life, then what you need to do is you need to follow them because they've got the knowledge, they've got the key to a truly satisfying Christian life. And so you, you know, develops these guru kind of mentality that we see sometimes in Christian circles. Now, Peter probably wrote this letter. Um, <clears throat> I've looked at the what the scholars say, the pros and cons, and uh, it seems to me that he, the, the best estimate is that he probably wrote this letter around 65 AD, give or take a couple of years. And at that time... Uh, there were teachers that were starting to infiltrate the churches, particularly the churches in Asia Minor, so the the Turkey area, so Colossae, Philippi and so on. And they were infiltrating the churches with false stuff, uh, stuff which which sounded great but had the effect of shipwrecking people's faith in God and their relationship with God. And when they spoke about knowledge, they spoke about a special knowledge uh, that they had, that they alone had, that you would need to follow them for and tap into. Um, in the second century, the, the, this, is like the, this is like the beginnings of something which would develop and become far more formalised in the second century, which became known as... Uh, uh, as Gnosticism, uh, gnosis being a word for for to know, so you get that in you know when you talk about an agnostic and, and that sort of thing. So it, it it did develop later on in the second century into Gnosticism, but what we have here is it in its infancy. Now, how does um, Peter say that we receive grace and peace in abundance? He he says it is through knowledge, that's certainly the case, but it's a knowledge of God and of Jesus that does the trick, not some other knowledge, not some higher knowledge than that. Now, in 1999, there was a travel book that was published which was called 100 Things to Do Before You Die. Has anyone ever read that book? No? Okay. Well, li- listen to part of the introduction to it hundred things to do before you die. And it said this, and I think it, I point this out because it captures the spirit of our age. It says this, life is a short journey. How can you make sure that you fill it with the most fun and that you visit all the coolest places on earth before you pack those bags for the very last time? And the book spells out how you can do that with 100 things that you must do before you die. But what it's saying is that the truly fulfilling life is, the, is, is about maximum travel and maximum fun. Uh, although it was interesting to me that one of the authors of 100 Things to Do Before You Die died a few years ago and he'd actually only done 50 of those things. He didn't actually achieve his own goal. But 
It's not unlike uh, some of the false teachers within the churches who are always egging Christians on uh, in, a, in, an almost en- in, an, in an endless quest for newer experiences, for better experiences, for more satisfying spiritual experiences. And uh, mixing Christian circles long enough and you'll see these fads as they come and go over the years and people just craving for what's the next best spiritual experience that's going to be on offer. In verses 3 and 4, Peter tells us about all that we need. And he says, if you look at verses 3 and 4, that, that everything that we need for life and for godliness has already been given to us through knowing Jesus. And how have we received that? Well, he says it's through his divine power because Jesus is God. And how has he called us in verses 3 and 4? He has called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, when you think about it, what is it that attracts us to Jesus? When you look at the person, the life, the teaching of Jesus and the witness of those who lived with him, what is it that it, it is his, his goodness, isn't it? Uh, it is his, his glory that attracts us to want to become. Why would you want to follow Jesus if, he, if, if you weren't attracted to him by his glory and by his goodness? And so Jesus has attracted us uh, through his glory and goodness and he's also made some promises to us. What has Jesus promised us? Well, in verse 4, Peter says that because of his promises that we may, and pay careful attention to the phraseology here, he says that we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. Now, how does that, how does that sound to you? Because the, this is not common phraseology in the New Testament. Does it sound a little bit mysterious, this idea of being uh, partakers in the divine nature? Or does it sound a, a, little, uh, uh, a little bit mystical, Uh, like escaping from the corruption of the world? Well, I think it does. Um, And the reason for that is that uh, this is the kind of terminology that the false teachers might might have used. But what Peter is doing quite deliberately is he's taking their terminology, he's taking and and he's he's sanitising it. Uh, He's taking their terminology and their promises, their language, and he's saying that you do not need what these people are promising because everything that they are promising you, you have already received in Jesus. You want to be caught up in the divine nature? Well, you are. If you're united with Christ through faith in his death and his resurrection... You are united with Christ, you are brothers with Christ and you are caught up uh, in the the heavenlies. You are one of God's people. You want to escape the corruption of the world? You don't have to go to some monastery or you can escape the corruption of the world by having your sins paid for you. 
and receiving the Holy Spirit and looking forward to the heavenly reality. Peter is deliberately using their language. And friends, we need to be very conscious of this because the reality is that there is no greater, no higher, no more satisfying spiritual experience than to be at peace with God, your creator, through knowing Jesus, his divine son. You see, you hear people, you hear of people who claim to have these special visions uh, or uh, words of knowledge, that's a big one, you know, that uh, he's a special person who God actually speaks directly to him or to her and they have words of knowledge and they can impart these words of knowledge to you. Or you hear a terminology about this you know, particular person, well, he or she has been specially anointed. You know, they're the anointed one. Friends, if you've got the Holy Spirit, which you have if your person is trusted in Christ, you've been anointed. But you hear about these special people with a special anointing and you must go to them and listen to them and be blessed by them and so on. And yet, and, and, and what that can do is it can make, make you feel like you're somehow missing out, that maybe you're a second grade Christian, that you haven't got the full experience. But in verses 5 through to 7, what Peter does is he paints a picture of true spirituality. He paints a picture of the person who is truly spiritual, he paints a picture of the kind of people that we need to be and to be working at. So let's just read, verse, I'll read verses 5 and 7 for you. He says, For this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. You see that? Now, there's a lot packed into that, so what I'd like us to do is to go back over it again and, and do it a bit more slowly and just sort of make a couple of comments about each of those qualities. Uh, it starts with faith. Uh, and uh, faith means, of course, to put your trust in God. And when you put your trust in God, you trust in the promises that God has made. And what are the promises that God has made to us? He's promised us that Jesus, his son, by his death and resurrection, has sufficiently paid for our sins. He's promised that by trusting in Jesus that we can be forgiven and that we will have an eternal home in heaven. And so to have faith is to trust that that body of truth that has been passed on by the apostles is true and we'll stake our lives on it. And so uh, the gospel, therefore, is the starting point. It's the foundation. But look at the other qualities. He says, add to your faith goodness. Now you think to yourself, well, that's, that's a very broad term uh, and uh, in one sense it encompasses all of the things that he talks about here. What does he mean by add to your faith goodness. It seems that what he's saying here is to, to clothe yourself with Christ, to uh, 
to, to, to work at the attractiveness of Jesus because uh, we've been called by Jesus through his glory and his goodness, through his character. And so in verse 3, so it means to, for us to actually uh, produce and to clothe ourselves with the character of Christ and to be working at that. Then there is knowledge. If we are to be like Jesus, then we need to grow in our knowledge of God. Uh, you know, there is in some circles this kind of anti-knowledge kind of uh, culture, you know, where people say, well, we're not really all that heavily into reading and studying the Bible. We just want to, you know, do God's work. Well, you're not going to be able to do God's work and be God's people unless you understand what it means to be one of God's people and what it is that God requires of us. And so he says, add to goodness knowledge. And there again is, of course, that word that the false teachers uh, were claiming as theirs. And then there is uh, self-control and perseverance. Now, I've placed these two together because it seems to me that self-control and perseverance are like two sides of the same coin. Um, think about it this way. Um, when do we need self-control? Well, isn't that when we're tempted to do something which is not good and, and you've got to put the brakes on? You've got to resist that temptation. It might be the temptation to get angry or temptation to lust or the temptation to gossip or something like that. You really, really want to do something but self-control means, no, no, I could put the brakes on. I'm not going to do that. And that requires self-control. Now, perseverance is, in a sense, the opposite to that. Because when do we need perseverance? Well, it's not when we're tempted to do something that we shouldn't do. It's more like when we're tempted to stop doing something which is good. Uh, like, for example, the temptation to stop trusting in Christ because trusting in Christ and obeying him just has gotten a little bit harder. And so we need to, to persevere. We need to dig our heels in. We need to not do, uh, to, to not stop doing something which is good. The next quality is godliness. And again, that seems to be one of those general words uh, and it, it is a general term for being like God. But in the context of to Peter, uh, it may be that this is in contrast to the false teachers who we'll learn more about in chapter 2 because in chapter 2 we see that they actually... Uh, godliness is to, to have a reverence for God, to respect God, to honour God. And it seems that the false teachers didn't. Uh, you know, they were... At best, you could describe them as having a fickle attitude towards God, uh, but uh, closer to the mark would be that they had a utterly disrespectful attitude towards God. And so for them, spirituality was all about me, 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 not about God. And uh, so we are to add godliness. And then um, if, if you're going to have a, a right respect and a love for God, then that impacts the attitude that we ought to have towards each other. And that attitude is the next quality, which is brotherly kindness. 
One of the other apostles, John, wrote in 1 John chapter 4 that if someone says, I love God, yet he hates his Christian brother, then what kind of a person is he? He's a liar, isn't he? You can't love God uh, and at the same time hate the person for whom God sent his son to die for. That doesn't make sense. And so the, 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 the godly person um, will love their brothers and sisters in Christ, which is very different from the person who slanders or the person who causes divisions within the church. And finally, Peter says that to our faith we will add love. Now, this is a bit different to brotherly kindness. Um, the, the word there for brotherly kindness is the word Philadelphia, which, which really, strictly speaking, is translated as brotherly love. And uh, uh, in the Bible there's three main types of love. There's uh, eros, which is a sexual love. There's phileo, which is a... Um, it's got to do with companionship kind of love, a mutual... Um, Enjoyment of one another and and, and so on and so uh, that, that so so he's that's the brotherly love uh, that we've just talked about, but to brotherly love he says we're to add love, and that's the third type of love which is agape love which is a it's a self-giving self-sacrificial love it's the kind of love that says well I want to put that other person first before myself, uh, it's the love that says that I will love the person who I don't find particularly easy to love and, uh, as, and even to go as far as to say, well, I'll love that person who is not actually loving towards me. And you know what? When you're not like that, the reason that Peter says is that because it's because you've, been, you've forgotten something, haven't you? You've forgotten that Christ has loved you. <laughs> and that you've been forgiven of your sins. So he says, to brotherly kindness add love. And, and that's the final quality that he talks about there. And what that uh, tells us is that um, uh, the spiritual life starts with faith, and it, uh, faith in the gospel, and it ends in the kind of love that's been displayed for us in the gospel. Now, in one sense, this doesn't sound particularly flash, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's not like the super spiritual person who can promise the, this, that and whatever experience, which is all very exciting. This sounds a little bit ordinary, but it's really the key to being a truly effective and productive person in the Christian life. Uh, the false teachers might have said, come and join us if you want to reach that higher level if you want to have some mystical experiences and be super-duper effective. But have a look at what Peter says in verse 8. He says, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, so you don't stop at some point, you don't say, well, I've reached a point in my Christian life, well, I know it all, or I've actually achieved godliness. No, no, no. You've got to increase. You don't retire from working on godliness. It says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective 
and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what kind of person do you have in mind when you think of the truly effective and productive Christian? That's a question to think about. My guess is that we're often tempted to think about the person with the big personality or the person who's got the, the upfront talents or the abilities that we don't have ourselves. And these things used rightly can be wonderful gifts from God, but this kind of thinking can actually be very, very worldly, very man-centred thinking because God often chooses the, um, the, the weak people, the, the lowly people uh, to do great things for him. And there's a good reason why he does that too, by the way. Do you know what the reason is? It's because when someone who doesn't look like they're particularly you know, fantastic in a worldly sense actually gets used to do some great things by God, then it's pretty clear who's done the work, isn't it? <laughs> it's God that's done the work. It's not, not dependent on human abilities. And therefore, God is the one who gets all of the glory for doing that, which is fantastic. Uh, and that's how God works. In fact, the Christians who often have the greatest impact for people, uh, impact for God, rather, in the lives of other people, are often those who, by their character, show that they're actually at peace, that they have found the thing that the Rolling Stones can't find. They've found satisfaction. And because it's when you're at peace, then you're not the person who's always anxious, you're not the person who's always craving for something more, and you're in a really much better state in life to be um, uh, attractive to other people. They've found satisfaction, not in the things of the world, not in the bigger house or the faster car or the ultimate travel experience, not even in the super-duper mystical experience, which is really quite transitory, but real satisfaction, which is found in Christ alone. It's got to do with being Christians who put other people first, who love each other, who revere God, who say no to sin, and who persevering in trusting in God, irrespective of what life throws at them, and they do so until the very end. People like this are very effective, very productive in the Christian life because they're great examples of what Christ is to others. In August 1951, Florence Chadwick made history. Does anybody know why? I wasn't even around in 1951. <clears throat> but I've got Wikipedia. Uh, she made history because she became the first woman to swim across the English Channel both ways. So she wasn't the first woman to cross the English Channel, but she crossed it both ways in 1951 and she entered into the history books. In 1952, she attempted to swim from... Catalina Island, which is in the Pacific, to the California coast. It's a distance of about, roughly about 40 kilometres. She swam for 16 hours 
before she finally gave up. There was a boat that had been going alongside her for safety's sake and she asked them to stop the boat and pull her into the boat. When she got into the boat, they told her that she was two kilometres from the finish line. Why do you think she gave up? Because the boat was there, <laughs> says Edgar. <laughs> someone else said, what was someone else said? Our optometrist said that she couldn't see. Yeah. And, and that's correct. Because uh, it was foggy on that day and she couldn't see the finishing. Had she seen the finish line, you reckon she would have asked to be dragged back into the boat? No way. In fact, a year later she went back and she... Uh, accomplished her goal. When Peter wrote this letter, he could see the finish line of his own life. We know that he expected that he was soon going to be martyred. Uh, he says that in the letter. And he could see his own finishing line. He knew he expected he would die soon. And so he had a reason, a good reason for writing this letter. And you see it in verses 10 and 11 and it's followed through in the rest of the book actually. And the reason is he wanted to remind the Christians about the finish line. That's why. Uh, the, the, he wanted to remind the Christians about the finishing line which should, uh, the, as you and I have that set before us, as we have a vision of it, it should uh, strengthen us and encourage us uh, to keep on persevering as Christians. And the finish line in verses 10 and 11 is the, is the welcome that we receive into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. That's the goal. That's the finish line. In uh, chapter 3, Peter talks about the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ as the thing which we ought to be expecting to happen and therefore what kind of people ought you to be given that he's returning. But after he died, Peter wanted these Christians to persevere. He wanted them to stay in the water. He wanted them to, to and it's the same message for us, to keep on trusting in Jesus alone as the one who brings us satisfaction and fulfilment, meaning and purpose in life. And to keep on becoming more like Jesus through knowing him better and taking on his qualities that we would be effective uh, Christians and honouring to God and so that we will not be fooled by anybody who says that there is... Uh, more satisfaction, that there is true satisfaction to be found in the things which this world offers or a greater satisfaction, a greater experience of God that can be found in anything other than the gospel of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faith that we have, which is so incredibly precious. Uh, the faith that is based on uh, our God and Saviour Jesus and his uh, sacrificial 
incredibly loving other person-centred death uh, on our behalf. Father, we live in a world where we are surrounded by people who are craving satisfaction in so many ways that are just so fleeting and yet uh, we have found in Christ satisfaction that is everlasting. May we know that more deeply, uh, that we would be people who would persevere in trusting in him, that we would be people who uh, grow in our knowledge and our godliness and our goodness, that we would be more like Jesus. And we pray that we would not give up, that we would continue because of that incredible reward, that incredible finishing line, which is the, the warm welcome into your eternal kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.